Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're taking our Bibles, please, and turning to one of the most unique, well-known, controversial books in the Bible, the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah this morning. Skeptics often pounce on the book of Jonah. How could a man survive for three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, they will ask. I heard of a religious woman who was seated on an airplane, <clears throat> and she was reading her Bible, and the fellow who was next to her on the plane looked over at her and said, you don't really believe all that stuff, do you? Yes, of course I do, she responded. Well, he said, I, I don't believe a lot of the stuff that's in there, especially about that guy who was swallowed by that whale. Oh, the woman responded, you, you must be talking about Jonah. Yeah. How do you think he could have survived in the sea all that time? Well, the woman responded, I, I don't really know, but I guess when I get to heaven, I'll have an opportunity to ask him. The fellow next to her responded, well, what if he's not in heaven? The woman looked at him and said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Skeptics pounce on Jonah, but believers ponder the book of Jonah and find it to be pun intended, one of the deepest books in the Bible. We're only in chapter 1, and if you think about it, since we began our study in the book of Jonah, we've learned something of the power of prayer. In verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and they lifted up their voices and they prayed. And then the ship's master in verse 6 encourages Jonah to wake up out of his sleep and begin to pray, and we're going to discover in chapter 2 and verse 1, Jonah really prays when he goes down into the belly of the fish. For then Jonah prayed unto the Lord. This is a book that tells us something about the theology of prayer. And of course, the providence of God is everywhere in the book of Jonah. The providence of God in that Jonah was able to find a ship that was going to Tarshish, and God was able to alert Jonah to the fact that he couldn't hide from God, nor could he hide from God's will, that God would prepare a great fish in his providence to swallow Jonah up, and restore him to a place of usefulness for his glory. We, we learn something of the peril of sin in the book of Jonah. The theology of sin is very clear. As the sailors look at Jonah in verse 8 and say, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. The book of Jonah is rich in theological themes. Most importantly, listen, most importantly, the book of Jonah presents a very important picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that's poignantly portrayed in the Old Testament for our careful consideration. Jesus said in Matthew 12 and verse 40, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm praying specifically this morning that the Spirit of God will open our eyes to the wonder of this Old Testament book so that we can see Jesus Christ on display. For Jesus points back to this book and says, you'll see me there. And so this morning, we begin our reading in the eighth verse as we look at this man who's gone overboard. Jonah chapter 1, verse 8, then said they unto him, the sailors to Jonah, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. 
What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? And What is thy country, and what people art thou? He said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. He said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word. Now, Father, I pray that you would allow our attention to your word this morning to show us something of the wonder of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That in seeing him, our hearts would be encouraged. That in knowing him, our hearts would be still. That we'd have that peace that passes understanding and knowing that the once and for all sacrifice for our sins has been provided on the cross of Calvary. That you raised him up the third day so that we might know that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is indeed the Son of God with power. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Lord, help us never to get over the wonder of it. I pray this morning, Lord, for anyone who may be in this room who's seeking by their own efforts to find peace with God, that today they would see that such efforts are futile, that all of us would see the beauty of your word as the attention is portrayed to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that we love him more because of what we discover. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Cameron Robbins has been in the news this past week. Cameron Robbins, an 18-year-old recent graduate from a high school in Louisiana, chose to jump off of a cruise ship, and he's not been seen again. Between the year 2000 and the year 2016, 270 passengers went overboard from cruise ships. Some of them because they were drunk, others because of foul play, sadly others seeking to commit suicide. Most people don't spend much time thinking about those who have gone overboard into the sea. In fact, most of their names are seldom considered within months of their departure. But we open our Bibles to the book of Jonah this morning, and we consider a man who went overboard 2,700 years ago. We consider him going overboard because his life was spared, and he came back to talk about the private passage that he'd enjoyed in the belly of Wally the whale. Jonah went overboard, but he came back to tell one story. In fact, it's the theme of the book of Jonah. You'll find the theme of the book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. These words, 
Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Because we're born in sin, in essence, all of us are castaways. Isaiah 57 says in verse 20, The wicked are like the troubled sea, which cannot rest, which cast up its mire and is dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, unto the wicked. All of us, born in the tumultuous sea of sin, should be able to see ourselves in the book of Jonah as the mirror of God is held up before us. There are two truths that I want you to consider with me this morning as we open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. I want us all to see that the efforts of man cannot save us from the wrath of God. Then I want us to see that the sacrifice of one can bring salvation to many. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, no. Instead of going to Nineveh, you'll recall that Jonah went down to Joppa, which is the ancient port city now called Tel Aviv. He headed out into the Mediterranean wanting to take sail to go to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. As we open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, we discover certain unnamed Spanish sailors, listen, exhibiting more character than Jonah, the one we affectionately call the prodigal prophet. In verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind into the sea. Literally, the Lord picked up the wind and hurled it at the sea. And the actions and expressions of the honorable sailors in the first 11 verses of Jonah chapter 1 cause us to say they had more character than Jonah who was sleeping in the harbor of that great boat. Let's learn together as we look in this book that the efforts of man cannot save us from the wrath of God. Now, sailors are not typically known to be men of piety. But storms tend to make atheists into pietists. The opening verses of the book of Jonah, we find these sailors from Spain. And I want you to notice what these sailors are doing. We discover that in verse 5, the mariners were afraid, and they cried, every man unto his own God. These sailors were polytheists. Jonah was a prophet of the one true God of Israel. He believed in our creator God. He knew Jehovah. He'd served the Lord as a prophet. What was Jonah doing as the sailors were crying out to their many varied gods? Verse 5 says, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. And he lay there fast asleep. Now the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, says that the captain of the ship came down there into the ship and he said, what are you doing snoring in the midst of this great tempest? The others were on deck praying, below the deck praying. Anywhere they could find, they were crying out to their God. But the one person on this boat who really knows the true God, the creator of the universe, the one son of Abraham on this boat, Jonah, the one prophet from the region of Galilee, he's sleeping. 
The people on the boat who don't know God are spending more time praying than the one guy who does know God. Did you know that Muslims pray five times every day? They pray at dawn, they pray at noon, they pray at mid-afternoon, they pray at sunset, and they pray in the evening. The mosques around the world mark these five times of prayer by a cadence that's heard to all who live around the minarets of the mosque. And did you know that 42% of the Muslim population in the United States of America professes that they pray five times every day? Over 60% of the world's Hindu population professes to pray every day. In fact, 71% of the world's Hindus will visit a house of worship at least on a monthly basis. 43% of the Buddhists in the world profess to pray every day. I've heard the Muslim calls to prayer around the world. I've been in southern India and heard dynamite blasting at the crack of dawn to wake up the Hindu gods as the Hindu people are called to prayer. I've heard the Buddhists as they chant their prayers in their saffron robes. And sadly, it's true. Many evangelical Christians are like Jonah. They know the one true God, but they're not all that faithful to him in prayer. Now these sailors on board this boat are like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel were crying out to God. They were being very sincere and crying out to Baal to send fire. They were even cutting their flesh. So it is today, the world is filled with people who are living in the pain of a storm, the storm of sin that's beset us all. And they're crying out in their adversity, but the storm doesn't seem to be stopping. You see, the efforts of man can never save us from the wrath of God. And these sailors are not only praying, but they're in the work of persuading. What do you mean? Isn't it interesting that the captain awakes Jonah and the captain says, Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. The idol-worshiping captain is enthusiastically inviting Jonah, the prophet, to pray. We don't think about it often, but this is true, that Buddhists and Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs, send out missionaries around the world to persuade the multitudes to pray. Of course, we know that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses knock on doors seeking to persuade people to find some measure of peace, perhaps in the Book of Mormon or perhaps in a deviant form of Christianity that does not recognize that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God and is eternal. There are many people who are in the work of persuading others, but all the persuading of the ship's captain could not bring salvation to his sailors. The winds of God's wrath is set upon that ship. And while there are people on the ship who are sincerely praying to their gods, and while there are those on the ship who are seeking to persuade others on the ship who already knew God to get involved in the prayer meeting, there was no hope for them. In fact, as I look at these 
Spanish sailors, if you will, these men of Tarshish, I find their character to be sterling in the first 11 verses of this chapter. They are prizing life over death. Having awakened Jonah out of the sleep he was in, we discover that Jonah tells them something that is shocking to them. He tells them in verse 10 that he's running away from God. He says very clearly at the end of the verse that the men knew that he now fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them that. And when they ask Jonah in verse 11, well, what are we supposed to do so that the sea can be calm? Jonah offers this advice in verse 12. He said to them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. And yet we read in verse 11, how these, or verse 13 rather, how these men respond. In verse 13, the word of God says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not for the sea was wrought and tempestuous against them. Hey, listen, as far as we know, these polyistic sailors, polytheistic sailors rather, had never been to Jerusalem. They'd never been in the temple. They'd never been exposed to the Torah. They didn't know the law of Jehovah. They'd never heard the creation account that was given by Moses. All those things that Jonah had known from his childhood, these particular men on board did not know. They did not know Genesis chapter 9, where God speaks of his wrath being borne out and allows for a death penalty to be given. Many things that they did not know, and yet they show great respect for life. These men demonstrate a great deal of character. They're praying. They're pleading with others to be religious with them. They value and prize life. And yet Jonah is on board this boat, the one true prophet, a backslidden, prodigal prophet, showing less character than the sailors from Tarshish. How do we reconcile that in our minds? Well, the book of Romans helps us out. The book of Romans helps us to understand what's going on in this passage. These men had a conscience, a conscience of the things of God. You see, the first verses of the book of Jonah provoke a question in our minds. How is it that sailors who don't know the true God are acting more righteously than the man who does know the true God? Why do the sailors seem to care more about God than Jonah? Hey, have you ever asked yourself this question? I know I have. Sometimes it comes not in a question but in a statement. The statement is a statement of observation. It goes like this. It seems like people who don't know God and make no claim to be Christians are sometimes better people than Christians. I think we've all heard that. Why is that? Why does a Buddhist sacrifice to make a pilgrimage, pilgrimage rather, to, to Nepal, to the birthplace of Buddha, And many Christians have a hard time getting out of bed and coming to church on a Sunday morning. Why will a Mormon who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible but believes that God is three persons, never connected but always distinct and believes that there's a possibility of thousands of other gods, for that's what the Mormon believes, why is it that a Mormon will sacrifice a year 
of his or her life to go on mission. And yet there are those who claim to be Christians who won't go across the street to tell their neighbor about the Savior. Why will a Roman Catholic attend Mass daily and bow to Mary, calling her the co-redemptrix, and never trust fully in the finished work of Christ, and never know the peace that comes in having Him as Savior? Well, in Romans chapter 2, we find something of an answer. In Romans chapter 2, the Bible says this, when Gentiles who do not have the law, they've never been exposed to the Torah, they've never known the Old Testament. But by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse. God made us with a conscience from the time of our birth, and thank the Lord for it. It's the conscience deep in the heart of man It helps man reflect the moral virtues of God. And so it is that those who do not even know the Lord can often act in a better way than those who do. Why? They're following the dictates of their conscience as their conscience has been programmed. Sometimes their conscience causes them to light candles. Sometimes their conscience causes them to count rosaries. Sometimes to give money or even get baptized or even go on mission. They're like the sailors, listen, they're like the sailors of Jonah chapter 1. They pray, they persuade others, they prize and they value life. Yet the storm of their soul continues to rage on. They can find no safe harbor for their soul. Why? Because the Bible clearly teaches it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. But it's according to his mercy he saves us. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let's be honest this morning. There are those who live according to conscience in more remarkable ways even than some believers who've had the blood of Jesus Christ applied. God's aware of that. He paints the picture for us in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is his prophet. He's not living for the Lord. In fact, his very life is bringing danger to the lives of others. While those who are praying every man to their own God, these polytheists, are crying out in prayer and acting, it seems, in piety and even prizing the image of God in man. Larry Bunker studied to be a Roman Catholic priest. He went all the way through seminary. And before he was appointed and took his holy vows to enter into the priesthood, he was told where he would be assigned to live as a priest, and he backed out of everything. He didn't want to leave his family members, so he went back home. Fully trained to be a Catholic priest, he went back home. He stayed faithful to church. He got old and he got sick. And in the hospital, his neighbors went into the room two men by the name of Dave, they went to the room where Larry Bunker was on the bed. They saw the priest leave. The priest had just given Larry Bunker his last rites. He was destined to die. And these two born-again men by the name of Dave looked at Larry and they said, Larry, are you ready to meet God? Tears came down his eyes and he said, no, I'm not. 
They were able to tell him something that we find in the book of Jonah. Larry had done many things in service for God. In many ways, he lived a virtuous life. They were able to say what Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9 says, Larry, salvation is of the Lord. And Larry came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. You see, there's a second wonderful truth that needs to be discovered in this passage. This is a deep book. This book not only teaches us that you can't be saved from the wrath of God by your own works, but this book demonstrates that the sacrifice of one man, the sacrifice of one man, can save us all from the wrath of God. When Jesus was asked to put forward his credentials, Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great whale, even so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus was saying, if you want to know my credentials, you can look back in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament you'll see a type of me. A type, a picture, a pattern, a metaphor. Now, no type of Christ anywhere in Scripture is ever perfect. But Jesus pointed back to Jonah and said, if you want to see me, look at Jonah. In many ways, Jonah is very dissimilar to Jesus. Jonah did not immediately submit to the will of God. Jesus always did the will of the Father. Jonah had no compassion on the people of Nineveh, but the heart of Jesus was always filled with compassion. Jonah brought others into harm's way, but Jesus went about doing good. Jonah was sleeping when others were praying. Jesus was praying when others were sleeping. There are many dissimilarities between Jonah and Jesus. But folks, there are many similarities as well. Jonah was left for dead in the belly of the great fish. Jesus was left for dead in a borrowed tomb. Jonah came out of the sea three days after he was placed in it. Jesus came out of the tomb three days after he was placed in it. Jonah was sent on a God-given mission to save a city, and he accomplished that task. Jesus was sent on a God-given mission to save the world, and praise the Lord, he accomplished the task. The sailors who cast Jonah into the sea found peace, and the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross, one was heard to say, surely this was the Son of God, and found peace. As Jonah is sent tumbling into the waves, he is a prefigurement, he is a type of Jesus. As Jonah is in the belly of the great beast, he's pointing to Jesus. Now he doesn't know it, and sometimes we don't know it either. Living our lives by the power of the Spirit, as a son or a daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ, often our lives point to Jesus and we don't know it. I'm sure that when Jonah went down to the belly of the great fish, the last thing on his mind was, wow, I get to be a type of the Messiah. I don't think he was thinking that. But he was. And I want you to notice with me that peace came to the sailors by the sacrifice of another. They had sought peace in prayer. They had sought peace in pleading. They had sought peace in even demonstrating the value of life. But there's a transition that happens in verse 12 in the book of Jonah, and we need to see it. In verse 12, the old Jonah seems to be going away, and a new Jonah is appearing on the page. For he said unto them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea, a very selfless 
piece of counsel. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that it's for my sake that this great tempest is upon you. In the first 11 verses of Jonah, Jonah's a very selfish prophet. But now the prodigal prophet is beginning to come home. Take me up, he says. Cast me into the sea. Jonah understood that the lives of the sailors were in danger because he was seeking to run from God. I know that it's for my sake that God has sent this upon you. Jonah is offering himself for the salvation of others. Listen. In eternity past, Jesus looked upon our sinful situation. With compassion upon us, his thoughts and his conversation with the Father are shared with us in Hebrews chapter 10. We read of his conversation with the Father in eternity past, and this is what the Lord said. When he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering Thou, speaking to the Father, thou wouldest not. But a body thou hast prepared for me. He said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come in the volume of the book to do thy will, O God. God demands punishment for sin. This is clear from cover to cover in the Bible. The wages of sin is death. And the good news that is provided in God's word is Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice, the one and only substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For he hath made him to be sin for us, this one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Listen, the sailors heard Jonah say, cast me into the sea and it's going to be calm to you. I love the song that says, I hear my Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 15, the sailors took up Jonah and they cast him into the sea. Jonah's singular sacrifice brought peace to the sailors who otherwise would have been doomed. And listen, Jesus' singular sacrifice brings peace to those who are otherwise doomed. Wherefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Not by our works, but we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I find something else intriguing in this passage. Did you notice that peace not only came to the sailors, but it also came to the sea? Verse 15 says, and the sea ceased her raging. Of course, this prefigures the Savior who would say, peace be still, and the Sea of Galilee would become calm. But more than that, it prefigures something even more wonderful. The book of Romans tells us that right now, according to Romans 8 and verse 22, the whole creation is groaning and travailing together. Why the fires in Nova Scotia this morning? Why the tidal waves? Why the earthquakes? Why the hail that will soon come through and the typhoons and the hurricanes? Why all these 
different manifestations of the strength of God in a sin-cursed world. The whole creation is groaning together. But there's a day coming that Jesus is going to say to this creation, peace be still. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22 that he, he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. In reality, all the world divides in Jonah chapter 1. There are those who are seeking peace with God by what they do. I'm going to be good. I'm going to pray. I'm going to value life. I'm going to persuade others to be good with me. There are many who are seeking peace with God by what they do. But the whole world divides here. There's one who has done it all. Jesus paid it all. In reality, the scope of the picture of the Bible is found in the book of Jonah chapter 1. For in reality, the sailors represent a world that's tumbling in sin and destined for doom. But in Jonah chapter 1, we see one to whom Jesus pointed and said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Jesus points back to Jonah as he points ahead to what he's going to do. Three days and three nights in the belly of the beast, For Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth for Jesus, so that peace can be purchased by the sacrifice of one. Miss Martin was 100 years old when she shared her testimony with me. She'd come to the United States from Glasgow, Scotland. She was a member of Harper Memorial Baptist Church in Glasgow, and her eyes shined blue and twinkled when she spoke of her homeland. She'd never married. But she'd found salvation as a young person at the Harper Memorial Baptist Church of Glasgow, Scotland. When she said she was from the Harper Memorial Baptist Church, something triggered in my mind. I thought, I've heard of that church. I I can't exactly remember why. And then then she reminded me that her pastor from her childhood had been a man by the name of John Harper. John Harper was a widower. His wife had died, and he found himself invited to go to the Moody Church in Chicago to preach the Moody Church in Chicago. So he took his six-year-old daughter, Annie, and his little niece, Jessie. And in April of 1912, he got on a boat to go to the Moody Church in Chicago. He was sailing out of Southampton, England. It was the 12th of April when he got on this massive ocean liner with 2,240 others to set sail. Pastor Harper made sure that everything was well, looking forward to his meetings. Then it happened. That great ocean liner hit an iceberg off the coast of Newfoundland. Having hit that iceberg, Pastor Harper now had a different responsibility. He made sure that his daughter and his niece were in a lifeboat. Then he went back into the decks of the Titanic, and he began to scream, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. When the ship went down, Pastor Harper went down down with the ship, still crying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Four years after the Titanic sank, a young Scotsman rose in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and he said, I'm a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting on a spar that awful night, the tide brought me to a Mr. John Harper of Glasgow. He was floating on a piece of the wreck nearby me, and he said, man, are you saved? 
No, I said, I'm not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the waves bore him away. But strangely, he came back. And he said, are you saved now? And the man said, no, I can't honestly say that I am. And he cried, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Shortly afterward, he went down alone in the night two miles into the deep. And there I believed. And I believe I'm John Harper's last convert. John Harper knew the message of the book of Jonah. That the efforts of man cannot save. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why? Salvation is of the Lord. Have you trusted him for your salvation? Or are you living overwhelmed in the sea of God's wrath, seeking peace by your own efforts? Salvation is of the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.